Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. We are continuing our series on cardiovascular implications of COVID-19. Given that there is still so much that is unknown about the cardiovascular consequences of COVID-19, today we are going to focus on another respiratory virus, influenza, and one of its unfortunate cardiac complications, myocardial infarction. We are super thrilled to be joined today by our fellowship director and director of the CCU at Hopkins, Dr. Stephen Schulman, as well as one of our star co-fellows, Dr. Randerson Cardozo. And friends, before we dive into this treasure of a discussion, please be sure to subscribe to the Cardio Nerds YouTube channel, bringing high-yield bite-sized education directly to your screens. This week, we are just thrilled to feature a phenomenal 10-minute video about all things QT interval-related by Dr. Nino Asakadze, cardiology fellow at the Johns Hopkins. Hospital. The QT is one of our favorite intervals, but is especially important now as we consider the impact of drugs like hydroxychloroquine in the era of COVID-19. Before we get started, friends, just remember this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The goal is simply to enjoy learning more about cardiology in the COVID era directly from expert cardio nerds. Dr. Stephen Schulman graduated from Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. He fulfilled his training in internal medicine and chief residency, as well as completing his cardiology fellowship at Hopkins. Dr. Schulman is the director of the coronary care unit, as well as the cardiology fellowship program director at Johns Hopkins. His main research interests include acute myocardial infarction. He has won numerous teaching awards from Hopkins residents and fellows over the years. While attending in the CCU, Dr. Schulman teaches and guides the next generation of residents and fellows about acute cardiac care. Dr. Randerson Cardozo graduated medical school at the University of Goiás in his home country, Brazil. He then completed internal medicine residency and chief year at the University of Miami Jackson Memorial Hospital. Randerson has diverse interests in cardiovascular diseases, including electrophysiology, imaging, and prevention. He is especially passionate about teaching and hopes to have a career, and he will have a career in academic medicine. He is currently earning a master's degree in cardiovascular epidemiology at Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and planning on pursuing additional imaging training at Brigham and Women's Hospital in the upcoming academic year. Definitely, if everybody could feel free in jumping in, but I have to just comment a few things. First of all, Dr. Shulman, you are just such a leader in this COVID era. You have really just lifted up the entire program and made all the fellows and faculty feel like you have our back and we feel confident as we face this pandemic and really big crisis that's coming our way. And Randerson, I uh, just as a friend and as a, a co-fellow, we have just had the best of times together. We teach each other and that's actually more you teaching me. <laughs> we, uh, I definitely could not have passed Echo Boards without you. So I just wanted to say this is a real treat to have you both here. Should I just say like, thank you for the introduction? Yeah, yeah. yeah whatever you yeah, yeah. yeah that, <laughs> Randerson, please, please thank us. <laughs> Thanks a lot for the kind words of introduction, Dan. And it's really such an honor to be part of Carter Nerds. Thanks very much for having me on the show. It's our pleasure to have you. We're so excited that you're here. Woo! Thank you, Cardio Nerds. That's oh, a real treat, Dr. Shulman. Okay, Heather, why don't you take it away? Okay, so let's start off by introducing a patient, Mr. Gavin Fluenza. 
a lovely Italian pizza parlor owner in his mid-50s. He has a history of hypertension, and he was in his usual state of health until a week ago when he developed a runny nose, cough, increased sputum production with associated malaise and myalgia. He initially wanted to just finish it out at home, but ultimately he decided to come to the emergency department because he developed chest and shoulder pain that developed earlier on the day of presentation. His initial vital signs were remarkable for a blood pressure of 163 over 98, his heart rate was 71, respirations at 15, and he was satting about 88% on room air and then was bumped up to 96% after being put on two liters of nasal cannula. His initial EKG showed normal sinus rhythm with anterior T-wave inversions, but a repeat EKG five minutes later demonstrated ST elevations in the anterior leads. As he's being whisked away to the cath lab, the charge nurse in the emergency room hands out masks and gowns to the team because his rapid flu sent it, uh, the emergency room triage returned positive for influenza A. Wow, Heather, this definitely sounds like a full-blown MI to me in the setting of the flu. In general, there has been a proposed link between acute respiratory virus infections such as influenza and myocardial infarction, and this has been reported since the early 1930s. A 2018 study in the New England journal by Kwong et al., the link to which we'll include on our website, found that the incidence of admissions for acute MI was six times as high during the seven days after laboratory confirmation of influenza infection as during the control interval. Randerson, what do you think is the mechanism whereby acute respiratory infections might make individuals more susceptible to myocardial infarction? That's a really great question, Corrine. The mechanism by which influenza and other viral illnesses, including right now COVID-19, can lead to acute coronary syndrome are several fold. First of all, acute MI can be a type 1 mechanism because the systemic inflammatory and immune response of the illness is pro thrombotic. So there's increased platelet activity, abnormal endothelial function, and decreased fibrinolysis, creating a prothrombotic milieu. Second, the systemic inflammation can also increase the activity of inflammatory cells, proteolytic enzymes, contributing potentially to an unstable plaque. These mechanisms can lead to a type 1 MI. But there's also many different ways in which an influenza or other viral upper respiratory infection can cause a type 2 MI by either increasing demand or decreasing supply of oxygen and perfusion to myocardial tissues. So those mechanisms include tachycardia, hypoxemia, increased systemic metabolic demand, hypotension, and so many other mechanisms. That was wonderful, Randerson. You really create a picture of all the different reasons for, for why MI can present in these patients. I want to turn now to Dr. Shulman. In caring for patients in the CCU, what has been your experience of the association between flu and MI? Are there certain factors that place individuals infected with flu at higher risk for MI? Uh, certainly, the uh, elderly seem to be at higher risk. Patients with multiple risk factors and, of course, pre-existing coronary disease. And this is a group of patients uh, most at risk for a type 2 uh, myocardial infarction. Indeed, the majority of patients we see are type 2 and non-STEMI events. The patient described today with an SC segment elevation MI is somewhat atypical. 
in our most recent pandemic with COVID-19, there is a, another potential mechanism of myocardial injury. The SARS coronavirus 2 virus uh, binds to the human angiotensin converting enzyme 2 receptor which is highly expressed in the respiratory tract and as well as the heart. And it's estimated about 7% of current COVID-19 patients admitted to the hospital have positive troponins and about one in four patients who are critically ill with COVID-19 will have positive troponin elevations. I wanted to sort of digress a little bit since you brought up COVID-19 and the troponin elevation. I know you recently completed a, a stint in the CCU. When you see the troponin elevation, how were you distinguishing between acute coronary syndrome and uh, another you know, possible reason like myocarditis? In these patients? Uh, that's a great question, Karina. One of the challenges in patients infected and not infected is distinguishing myocardial injury from myocardial infarction. And so we're certainly looking for, beyond the enzyme elevation, evidence of ischemia via symptoms, ECG, wall motion abnormality that would let us uh, define this as a uh, Microinfarction. infarction. Nonetheless, the prognosis, whether it's injury or microinfarction, both add significantly to the disease process in an adverse way. Does MI usually present differently in these patients, or is it is there a difference in the severity? The presentation depends on the context. In my experience and in the literature, MI does present differently. So in contrast to the primary reason a patient comes to the coronary care unit with acute myocarditis. These patients arrived at a hospital with their viral syndrome. And then through evaluation, either worsening, shortness of breath, ECG changes, or wall motion abnormality gives us a hint that the heart is involved with this uh, process as well. And so we have to have a very high index of suspicion, particularly in patients, the elderly, those with pre-existing coronary disease and multiple risk factors, that this is an at-risk population and that the heart may ultimately be involved in the process. And you said NSTEMI is usually the more common presentation compared to STEMI. Absolutely. So um, in the literature and in Randerson's study, 80 to 90% of patients will have a non-SC segment elevation event. Is it, sorry, guys, this is um, Amit. I've been quiet so far, but I've just been so mesmerized by this discussion. And um, I, I have to say how special this is for me, Dr. Shulman. Running with you and learning from you remains uh, among my favorite memories from residency. And it's, uh, it's so awesome to learn from you again right now. When we're talking about the myocardial injury in the, within the context of a viral infection, which I think is relevant for influenza and COVID, how are you teasing out an ACS presentation from myocarditis? Can you walk us through your steps in terms of, are there differences in the clinical history or troponin trend or EKG? And I ask because, you know, ideally we would try to minimize trips to imaging testing or the cath lab to try to prevent exposure to healthcare workers? Yes. So in the COVID-19 pandemic, there's been two patterns of myocardial injury. Uh, one pattern is a, a progressive rise in troponin associated with other inflammatory markers, uh, D-dimer, ferritin, IL-6. And that likely reflects a cytokine storm uh, that a few patients unfortunately develop in more than uh, isolated microinjury. injury. A second group of patients do get, by report, uh, 
viral uh, fulminant myocarditis. And uh, this is a rise in troponin with severe LV dysfunction and uh, heart failure. In our units and on the floor, it is often challenging to distinguish uh, acute microinfarction from, from myocarditis. We often rely on our clinical instincts, uh, history exam, and ECG to help uh, guide us. The patient with uh, myocarditis might have myopericarditis with f- evidence of pericarditis on uh, ECG. A persistent elevation of troponin markers instead of a rise and fall of troponin elevation that is evident of acute microinfarction, often lacking the discrete wall motion abnormality on echocardiography that acute MI has, uh, where microditis may have diffuse depression of LV dysfunction, uh, although rarely isolated wall motion abnormalities can occur. Great. Thank you, Dr. Shulman. That's very helpful. Yeah. It sounds like it's difficult to make that distinction overall at the bedside, but the troponin trend and pattern as well as uh, focal wall motion abnormalities uh, can help clue us in. Thank right. You. And you know, the ECG also, we, we hope by often with acute microinfarction, there's uh, focal ECG changes where there may be diffuse T-wave changes or evidence of pericarditis in uh, the myocarditis patient. Thank you, Dr. Shulman. So we had already alluded to this idea, and we know, as we talked about earlier, that a lot of these patients with the influenza or a viral illness that come in with chest pain and NMI tend to be more of the end-STEMI type. And we know that within end-STEMI, we have patients that come in with a plaque rupture event versus demand. I know that this is a very challenging thing for me to suss out when I'm dealing with patients, but you're one of the smartest clinicians we know. So if you could walk us through how you make the distinctions clinically, if there is a real distinction to make even, especially without invasive testing or imaging before you make a treatment plan for this patient team, this is one of the more challenging clinical situations we deal with time and time again. And the relevance is we treat type 1 ACS events with uh, standard AHA-CC guideline therapies. Type 2 events, we just try and decrease demand. And so the distinguishing type 1 and demand events are very important and often very, very challenging. I think in the influenza and viral illness uh, patient, many of these patients are going to have type 2 demand events where treating, like Randerson said, treating the hypoxemia, treating the fever, treating the inflammatory state uh, that's driving the demand is what's uh, best for the heart, treating dehydration and the like. And we have to also be ready to pick out that plaque rupture event, which uh generally is uh, someone who will have symptoms of myocardial ischemia, where the demand event less likely have symptoms of myocardial ischemia. And, um, you know, with, in the rare event that there's SC elevation, well, that is, uh, in my experience, always a, a plaque rupture or plaque fissure event. No, that's definitely challenging. And we know that patients come in with this mixed picture, especially in these cases. And so it could be very challenging to suss out. And even sometimes after they go to the cath lab and they do have underlying coronary disease, as they very likely do, you know, even then it's hard to know if it's a plaque rupture unless you see like a large thrombotic lesion on cath. 
Uh, agreed. And I don't think troponin helps that much. I've had patients with very large troponin elevations with a type 2 event and smaller elevations with a type 1 event. So that is not uh, very helpful. And the challenge with studying type 2 events is it's such a mixed bag of patients that the exact treatment except treating what's driving it has not been readily elucidated in and not been well studied given the diverse population that develops us. We do know it's a, as bad a prognosis uh, as a type 1 event, and these patients have to be evaluated and watched carefully. We recently talked to an Italian cardiologist in Milan, and he was saying that in addition to COVID-associated presentations like myocarditis, he was seeing a lot of late presentations of MIs in patients without COVID who were kind of staying at home because they didn't want to leave and get infected. And so they were presenting pretty late in their course. Have you seen this yet in the CCU? In Baltimore, we're still early in this pandemic. Uh, certainly, emotional stress is well associated with the onset of acute microinfarction. And we have to anticipate that not only people infected, but loved ones and people not infected with the acute stressors of what's going on may be at uh, risk for acute microinfarction. Um, I'm going to move on to our next topic, but before I do, I, I was telling the group earlier, I interviewed a cardiologist in Spain today and they're like just really trying to stay afloat they're dealing with it's it's like a crazy crisis over there but he actually mentioned that they've seen a huge drop in mi presentations as well probably for the same reason he didn't he didn't elaborate but i think it'll be really interesting to see over the course of this pandemic how things sort of shift around i also worry that patients are afraid to come to the hospital yeah, no, exactly. Dr. Schumann, what are your thoughts on uh, coronary CTA for some of these patients? Even as you're trying to sort out if it's really a type 1 or type 2 event, or even myocarditis in the acute setting, and uh, especially as our, our technique gets better and we're able to image patients with a higher heart rate, and also thinking about protecting the cath lab personnel, what do you think about CTA in some of these settings? So I think CTA could be a, a very useful tool. We are in the COVID-19 patients and those under investigation. We are trying to limit moving them in and out of their rooms. Any evaluation would have to wait till things have stabilized. You know, that's a really interesting, Randerson, you brought up that point because Dr. Gianluca Pontone in our Italy Experience episode did mention that they were trying to use preferentially more CTA to help triage cath lab use by, as a way of trying to minimize exposure. But even going to the cath lab, of course, presents its own problems. Yeah, it certainly does. We're also being judicious in cath lab use and we are getting circumspect in all our tests and isolate what's best for the patient and best for caregivers and to get the best outcomes for everyone. Okay, so back to our patient, Gavin Fluenza. Clearly, STEMI is suspected and with proper droplet precautions, the patient is brought to the cath lab where a proximal LED occlusion is identified and successfully ballooned and treated with drug-eluting stent. Once MI is suspected or identified, Dr. Shulman, is there a difference in management in these patients? So I'm unaware of increased risk of stent thrombosis, though concerned that they're in a prothrombotic state and platelets are activated with uh, viral syndromes, as Randerson uh, stated. And so when one thinks about 
dual antiplatelet therapy. Uh, you could consider weighing clotting and bleeding risk, but a more po- one of the more potent platelet antagonists in addition to aspirin would probably be a reasonable treatment. That definitely makes sense. And then, you know, we, we've already touched on this a bit, but particularly in the COVID era, what are your impressions in terms of protective management, how we can sort of best uh, handle that while taking patients to the cath lab? Uh, we've had a few patients taken to the cath lab with SC segment elevation MI, and are patients under investigation or known to be COVID positive? Uh, emphasis is on safety of the patient and safety of the staff, and less emphasis on door to balloon time of 90 minutes. So, all protective equipment has to be in place. We have designated a specific cath lab suite uh, for care of these patients and care be given to safely getting this patient to the cath lab and safely performing uh, the procedure. Incredible. And I think the judicious use of the cath lab is going to be really important uh, moving forward. Returning to our patient, Corrine, awesome job opening up that LAD. Really happy to see Mr. Fluenza back on his feet, doing laps around the unit, getting good physical therapy without any difficulty by day three of his event. He's tolerating his awesome regimen of aspirin, tacagrelor, high-intensity statin, and metoprolol. And an echocardiogram shows mild apical hypokinesis, but the ejection fraction is overall preserved. Turning now to how longer-term outcomes are different in these patients from those observed in other types of MI that are not confounded by viral infections. Randerson, really enjoyed reading your paper in the American Journal of Cardiology, examining the short-term prognosis and management of patients with a myocardial infarction with concomitant influenza. Do you mind walking us through the study, what you found, and what that may mean for the clinicians taking care of patients? Absolutely, Amit. Before I get into the details of the study, I also want to acknowledge the hard work of all my co-authors uh, involved, uh, especially my friend, Dr. Manuel Rivera. He's a cardiology fellow at the Washington University in St. Louis. And also Dr. Matt Sarney, one of our interventional cardiologists who were really instrumental in this paper. The study was actually motivated by a patient that I cared for very similar to Mr. Fluenza. We reviewed the literature at the time and found many reports on the association of influenza and other viral respiratory illnesses with acute MI, but very little data on the outcome of these patients. So we set out to examine this question in the national inpatient sample. This is the largest database of inpatient care in the United States. In the period that we interrogated the database, we found 4.2 million acute MIs, and of those, about 13,000 patients had a concomitant diagnosis of influenza on the same admission. So we did two things in the study. First, we wanted to report the descriptive outcomes of these patients with influenza and acute MI. And second, to compare the outcomes in these patients to controls with acute MI and no influenza. So what did we find? First of all, the patients with acute MI and influenza, they were older and they had a higher burden of some comorbidities like heart failure and diabetes, but a lower rate of atherosclerotic risk factors like tobacco, smoking, and hyperlipidemia compared to patients with acute MI and no influenza. What about how did these patients do? What were their in-hospital outcomes? What about the descriptive outcomes of these patients? 
So it turns out that about 90% of this population had non-ST elevation myocardial infarctions and only 10% had STEMIs. About a quarter of them had coronary angiography and 11% underwent some type of coronary vascularization, most commonly PCI. Now, this is a really important point. The in-hospital mortality of these patients was very high. It was about 14%. And one-third of these patients with acute MI and influenza had multi-organ failure. Moving on to the second objective, which was to compare the outcomes of these patients to those without influenza, you can imagine that there's a lot of confounders in this comparison because these populations are different in many levels, not just with regards to the influenza diagnosis. To minimize this confounding, we did a propensity score matched analysis and we were very strict on our matching criteria. In the end, we compared almost 12,000 patients with acute MI who had influenza to an equal number without influenza. So even with propensity matching, we found that the patients with influenza had a higher in-hospital mortality, acute kidney injury, multi-organ failure, lymph stay compared to those with acute MI and without influenza. So what this data really highlights is really that the adverse outcome and prognosis of these patients with acute MI and influenza and yes, there's an, an important limitation is that we're not able to differentiate type 1 or type 2 MIs based on this data alone. But like Dr. Schumann alluded to, these patients really, even with type 2 MI, have a poor prognosis. And it's important to recognize that. And I also want to say that all those studies that reported association of acute MI and influenza, they really didn't differentiate those type of myocardial infarctions because it's often hard to do that without doing routine coronary angiography in all the patients. So this data really highlights the adverse outcomes in these patients and how they're currently managed. Wow, Anderson, thank you so much. And thank you for all your work on this subject. And that was really a stellar explanation. So what are the next steps in research so we can maybe make a dent in the poor outcomes that we're seeing with patients who are presenting with both flu and MI? So I think an important uh, aspect of the treatment of these patients will be finding better ways to phenotype these patients. Ideally, we would do that non-invasively because we can't do routine coronary angiography or intracoronary imaging in all patients. As our non-invasive imaging tools get better, I think it's really an area that deserves more attention and research on how we can better manage these patients with uh, viral respiratory illnesses or other situations that can uh, lead to a type 2 MI, but also there is a significant portion of these patients who have plaque rupture and have a type 1 event. And another potential area for research would be to develop the ideal therapies for these patients. I think that despite our widespread knowledge that type 2 events are common and associated with an adverse prognosis, there's such a heterogeneous population that we really haven't figured out exactly how to treat them effectively. And I think it all starts first with phenotyping the population better so we can ultimately come up with better treatment strategies. Wow, Randerson, I'm so glad that smart people like you are looking into things like this. And this will, I can imagine, only become more relevant in the COVID era. I'm wondering, Dr. Shulman, what parallels do you see or anticipate with the COVID-19 uh, affected patients? And do you have any thoughts in terms of what we'll be encountering moving forward? So uh, given uh, Randerson's uh, wonderful article and explanation, it strikes me that uh, when only 23% of flu MI patients are going to the cath lab with such a poor prognosis, 
just raises the alarm that in this high-risk group of patients and with flu and I'm sure with uh, COVID-19, that as cardiologists, we have to be on the lookout for uh, more aggressive therapies and figure out um, who should be in the cath lab. And it strikes me a much higher percentage than 10% to look at their anatomy, figure out who's had a plaque rupture type one event to revascularize uh, those patients. And in those, we don't revascularize at least better risk stratify uh, so we can figure out who needs more aggressive therapies. I think we'll be seeing a whole host of MI complications, myocardial complications, heart failure complications in uh, the COVID-19 population. And ongoing research will uh, help us figure out who needs uh, cath lab, who needs uh, mechanical support and or non-invasive evaluation. And we have to get better at risk stratifying these patients uh, to decrease future risk. That's absolutely wonderful, Dr. Shulman. And I agree, you know, as terrifying and uncertain as this pandemic is, I think the one thing that remains true is that there is definitely going to be a lot to learn from this, you know, from from a cardiovascular standpoint, from a medicine standpoint. And so there'll be a lot of potential for research moving forward. Dr. Shulman and Dr. Cardozo, we want to thank you from the bottom of our hearts for taking the time to teach us more about this important topic. Not only are we still in flu season, but as we've discussed at many points in this interview, we're going to undoubtedly be facing several unanticipated cardiovascular complications, uh, such as acute coronary syndrome, myocarditis, heart failure, like Dr. Shulman mentioned, in patients infected with COVID-19. And it will be so important for us cardio nerds to be on the lookout for these potential complications moving forward. There are a lot of units, CCUs, that are trying to learn how to plan for the surge and just logistics. And Dr. Shulman, as the director of the Johns Hopkins CCU, uh, I think many cardio nerds are wondering, what are the steps you're taking to prepare for the surge of COVID patients? Thanks, Mid. It's certainly a stressful time for patients, nursing staff, ancillary staff, house staff, fellows, and attendings alike. Everyone has uh, gotten trained in how to put on their personal uh, protective equipment. When we have a patient under investigation in our coronary care unit, and we've had five during my two weeks there who had heart failure and or transplantation or an LVAD and concern for infection, Uh, we had uh, someone from infection control uh, watch us as we donned Uh, protective equipment to make sure that we did it correctly. We have two rooms with negative pressure that we're admitting our patients to who are under investigation. We're also helping out our medical intensive care unit colleagues by taking routine uh, MICU patients into our units since the MICU is uh, turning into a a biocontainment unit. I think it takes a full team uh, effort by nurses, infection control, house staff, fellows, and attendings alike to help each other and to get through this crisis. Incredible. Well, thank you, Dr. Shulman. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, and you. we really appreciate your time in this really just crazy time when you're just not going to have enough time to talk to us, and yet you make <laughs> your way and talk to us, which is just, uh, we're overwhelmed with gratitude. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Cardinerds. Nerds. 
Well, that brings us to the end of our show. So it's time to make like an S2 and split. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioNerds. And please share what made your heart flutter this week. Send us a clip to CardioNerds at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, be a nerd and spread the word. And now, a flutter moment. Hey, Cardio Nerds. My name is Yuri Parios, and I'm a nurse on the coronary ICU at the Cleveland Clinic. And something that really makes my heart flutter is when my patients are grateful for the care that I've given. Nurses work really, really hard to do right by their patients. And when they acknowledge us and are grateful for what we've done and they say thank you, it really makes my heart flutter. (laughs) 